Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Because I'm fine. Hello, this is IntelliCast. This is our last podcast of the year. Uh, thanks for listening. This is year five. Is that, isn't that that crazy that this is our fifth year? I know. It is, that's a long time. There's a lot of podcasts that come in and out. Like they last 18 months and then they're done. Probably about 200 episodes. We do around 40 a year, so about 200 episodes. Um, this was an idea that... Honestly, Adam Jolly and you had, and at first we had no idea what we we're doing, and we now we have a little bit of an idea of what we're doing. Um, but five years, it's amazing. So, I mean, first off, thanks for you for doing this for five years. It's a lot of effort from you and the marketing team, and um, it's new. I don't, I don't think you had done podcasts before, and now you're an expert at it, and we've done a lot of good stuff with it. Um, the company has allowed us to really have a free reign on this episode. Sometimes probably too much rope, right? Yeah. There's a few times I thought we would have hung ourselves with, and no one has said a word. So. Yeah. So um, honestly, we get on here and there's no rules. Um, there's nobody policing this. And maybe there should be a little bit more of that. But I think that's part of the um, longevity and the appeal of the podcast maybe is that we come in here and we just talk and we speak our mind and we're not always perfect with what we say. We're not always the most educated on the topics we talk about with the news segments. Um, it's just really um, kind of, we haven't really talked about this, but it's really just kind of like um, office talk, water cooler talk with news in our industry, right? It's kind of a conversation you would have in the morning as news comes out. Um, we're our interviews, I think, are pretty good. We have some really good guests over the years. Um, and so I'm really proud of all the interviews that we've done over the last five years. Amazing guests have come on, so we appreciate all of them. Um, and the listeners, obviously, thank you for listening. We wouldn't do this if we didn't get feedback and numbers. And um, people talked about it when we were at events and at conferences. And it's, it helps me, honestly, and I've said this a million times, it helps me have conversations with people I don't know really well because I think that they feel like they know me, and I think that's a good thing. And have yeah. an actual, honest conversation. I and mean, you, you get the same thing when you travel. Um, I do. I mean, yeah. I get that. I get. I built relationships that I wouldn't otherwise have just because of this. Like, oh, can you help with this? And as you mentioned from the beginning, yeah, I had no experience doing this. This was learning <laughs> on the fly. And yeah, yeah. if you go back Literally. and listen to some of that early ones, you can tell we made some mistakes. I remember oh. distinctly one where the mics weren't working and we did not know it. That was a rough one. We had some really bad ones initially. The, the A couple of the live ones, we were probably too aggressive at first with some live podcasts and taking equipment out of town and you not attending one of the podcasts and, you know, 
we try to shot too hard. I think we found our niche now, but we probably tried to push it a little bit too far initially. Yeah, we, we flew a little too close to the sun originally. We had one good one good live one, and then one real bad live one, and we didn't do a live one for a while. Yeah, we're going to get back to that. Um, yeah. We have some ideas for next year. Maybe we'll execute on those. But um, again, thanks for listening. This is a really good episode. Um, Howard Feinberg, who's one of my favorite people and should be everyone's favorite person in the industry, um, he has a tough job as advocacy at Insights Association. He's the senior, senior VP of advocacy. He really um, works with Congress and um, in DC to ensure that marketing research is best positioned in legislation. And we all know that with privacy legislation, what's going on um, with all of these different laws and states, especially California and other states that are trying to replicate that, he's making sure that he's best representing marketing research so we don't have handcuffs on when we conduct marketing research. So um, he talks a little bit about that. Really interesting guy. Um, so Howard Feinberg from Insight Association is first. And Tim Cornelius, who um, I didn't know before this, but I feel like I, could, I, I want him to be one of my best friends. He's a really good guy, a really cool story. He taught us a lot about, you know, when we talk about diversity inclusion, we talk a lot about a lot of things that you can initially see. So gender, age, ethnicity, um, sexuality, but he is really focused on um, ensuring people with disabilities have equal access. And we think about that when we're designing research and it's such a, an important part of marketing research because a lot of those things you can see, a lot of those things you can't see, we should always be thinking about it. And he's opened up my eyes a lot with how I think about research. He's really passionate about it. Yeah. And honestly, if you look it, 2022 has been a good year for Tim. He is, he was the 2022 winner of Quirk's Fearless Leader Award. He was named to the Grit Futures list, as well as a finalist for the Wire Diversity Champion Award all this year. So, not a bad year for Tim Cornelius. If remember, we used to give away like the Researcher of the Year awards. Yep. <laughs> he would probably be the male Researcher of the Year this year. He really kind of really emerged on the scene as someone who's a big thought leader and driving a lot of change in the industry. So good for him. There's more stuff he's got on there. He's got like a, an incredible um, LinkedIn profile. So um, listen to his interview. He's a good guy, really smart on this topic, really passionate about it. Um, such a necessary thing that we need to consider when we're designing and executing research. So Tim Cornelius will be joining us as well. And um, should we talk about anything else before we go? We talked a lot about podcast stuff. Anything else we want to talk about? I, I have one thing. Any any good uh, Christmas things you have going on since it is as people are listening to this it is christmas time yep. any big plans any big traditions um no not really honestly so i'll see my family my tradition is really going to see my dad for a few days going to see my mom for a few days hopefully i get to see my niece and um my nephews that are in georgia i saw them over thanksgiving but hopefully i'll see them again because they're at a fun age they're 10 and 8 and then i have another niece and nephew that are Gosh, my nephew just turned 22, which is crazy to think about. And my niece is 19. So I'll hang out with them a lot. Um, but I don't th I don't have huge traditions with them other than just kind of family, generic family time, I think. So okay. that's all I'll do. I don't, I'm not going anywhere over the holidays as of right now when we're recording. 
you never know. I might end up going to a ball game or something, but likely I'm just kind of hanging out at home. What, what about you? So we have my sister coming up. We normally, we started hosting at our house for Christmas. So we're going to have the immediate family come for that. We'll do some special stuff on Christmas Eve and then they'll come over Christmas morning. And a lot of it is revolves around my kids. There's opening presents. We'll go, we'll at some point make it down to the Cincinnati Zoo for the Christmas lights. We'll hit up Kings Island for Winterfest. So well, it's a busy two weeks at the end of December, even though I'm not working. To me, yeah, that's, that's one thing. Um, it's, it's really for kids, right? A lot of the Christmas mm-hmm. season is the kids. And you're, man, your kids are at a perfect age to kind of have fun. I was at a Christmas tree lighting festival thing last night in my township and we had and we really elevated it this year we had multiple santas we had a a santa claus and a mrs claus and elves and a professional photographer and a studio taking pictures of families and things and we had free hot chocolate we had free pizza we had cookies we had a petting zoo that's where i saw the um the The lamb lamb, which i told you off air that i got a picture with a lamb (laughs) last night um, and there were so many kids running around and, um, running around getting hot chocolate, running around getting Christmas cookies, running around to go see Santa. And that's what, to me, that was just beautiful to see kids running around so happy celebrating the holidays and the parents just smiling. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you'll get experience over the holidays. I'm assuming that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Christmas is my daughter's favorite time of year. She would sell, she would, she's one of those people that would be having the Christmas decorations up year round if we would let her. Um, I mean, we put our Christmas decorations up before Thanksgiving, despite my protests. Yeah. Um, Maybe because we were celebrating Christmas with my in-laws over Thanksgiving. But I mean, like tonight, we're going to go look at, there's a couple places where drive through Christmas lights. We're going to go pile into the car and go spend an hour looking at different Christmas lights. Yeah. All that stuff. So we have got to do it. The elf on the shelf has made an appearance as of this week. Yeah. Um, the behavior. I mean, parents, I, you may not like the elf on the shelf, but you will see a behavior improvement if there is any sort of issues. Isn't that crazy? How that's been so successful. Yeah. And I'm surprised they have not caught us yet. Like, and I will tell you this. So literally two nights ago, or I guess it was two mornings ago, I was finishing my workout in the morning. And my wife's texting me. Keep in mind, it's like five o'clock in the morning. She's like, I need you to hide the elf. I'm like, yeah. why? She goes, I fell asleep and I forgot to do it last night. And your daughter's already awake. And this is five in the morning and she wants to come down and find the elf. Uh-huh. So I have to creep upstairs silently, hide it somewhere. And I'm su- and this has happened several times over the last couple of years. And I'm surprised they have not caught us yet. Wow. Yeah. It's, you're getting <laughs> close. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh-huh. And they have advent calendars they've started now. Although I will say, I like the Lego advent calendars. Oh, yeah. No need, no need for candy at 6.30 in the morning. But they're both up. They're downstairs. They're building Legos at 6.30 in the morning. Like, cool. I can live with that. Yeah. Well, that sounds fun. Well, I will yeah. say um, we're recording this early, early December. And as of to this moment, we have not heard one Christmas song in our office, which is crazy to say. I because, can't say that in my car. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but in the office, we have some people pushing for Christmas music. Um, but next week will be, there's no holding back. Once it's December, especially the second week of December, mm-hmm. the Christmas people, you know what? You deserve your time. Um, I'm hoping that we play some of the 
um, more old style Christmas music. That's what I'm hoping. We'll see. This is a lot of inside baseball, but yeah. do we still have the song from Christmas Vacation? Yeah, we do. You remember several years ago where we had to go find an old computer that had a CD-ROM built in so we could actually play it in the office? Do we um, still have that somewhere? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got it. Um, let's, it's, um, I can't remember the name of the song, um, but it's Ray Charles and um, The Spirit of Christmas, I think is what it's called. Yeah. It's when he's stuck in the attic. Yeah, and you know um, he's crying in the attic, just watching old films with his family, right? Yep. Um, beautiful Christmas song, stuff like that. I love. <laughs> you know, some Bing Crosby, some Ray Charles. That's really good stuff. The, cl- um, the classic stuff, yeah. Yeah, once Mariah Carey stole Christmas music, that's when it kind of ended for me. But that's just <laughs> for kids. Maybe it's a different story. <laughs> she became the queen of Queen of Christmas, deservedly so. But I like the old stuff. I'm sure people that are like hoping to hear what Howard Feinberg has to say are like, I'm really over your right. life. Right. Yeah, you two stop talking about Christmas. Let's just get to it. Right. Um, so Howard Feinberg is up next. Then Tim, Tim Cornelius. And um, have a great um, new year holiday season. And we'll see you guys in 2023. Thanks, everybody. Joining us now, I am pleased to have on um, Howard Feinberg, who is the Senior Vice President for Advocacy for the Insights Association. Howard, good morning. Thanks for joining. How are you? Good, Brian. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, so excited. Um, you know, Brian and I were, we've been batting around this topic to talk about it in detail for a while. And I was like, we could stumble through it. Um, or Howard, who writes on it, you know, constantly and keeps really the industry informed on what's going on nationwide. Um, through the Insights Association. Let's invite him on. And so you were gracious enough to come on. So I really appreciate it. I'm happy to, although I will state up front, I am not actually an expert on this. And most importantly for everybody, I am a lobbyist, not a lawyer. And nothing I say is legal advice because you would not want that. (laughs) Yes, understood. Um, Each individual company should be, uh, I'm sure has an expert in this, but um, this gets so complicated. And maybe we'll start off there is that, with all the, all the legislation, not just in the U.S., but I guess we'll focus on the U.S., um, it's kind of hard to keep track of, especially in the U.S., where we have, you know, 50 states and potentially 50 different laws we have to think of and research. That's just really challenging, right? Agreed. And, you know, we're doing our best at the Insights Association to try to keep our members up to date on what they need to be looking out for. You know, so, in addition to California with the California Consumer Privacy Act, you have Colorado and Virginia, their, their own comprehensive privacy laws passed last year. Um, they're different from CCPA. They're, they have a fair amount of similarities, and they're actually reasonably similar to each other in Colorado and Virginia. They both come into effect in 2023, uh, but 2023 is also when California will transition to the California Privacy Rights Act, the CPRA, uh, which basically turns it changes a bunch of the definitions in CCPA, and although it raises the threshold on a couple things, it mostly just makes it worse uh, <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. all sorts of ways and expands it. Um, yeah. So we're trying to keep everybody on top of those, but also doing the best we can from an advocacy standpoint to. Uh, hold off or you know improve as many state legislative efforts as we can 
Uh, there were bills all in tons of states last year trying to pass their own comprehensive mishmash privacy bills uh, and trying to keep all that at bay while trying to further a federal privacy law, which is really what we've been after for years, a, something at, comprehensive at the federal level that would preempt all these different state conflicting laws. Because as you said, there's, there's no, there's not any realistic way for anybody but the largest companies to be able to keep on top of the state landscape. And that's not even taken into account of other countries. That's right. Just the US. right. 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 It's challenging for us. We're a small company, but we do global work. So right. we have to stay on top of obviously GDPR and Brazil and Canada. And it's just a pain in the butt for us um, that doesn't have a full-time um, attorney um, sorting through all of these different laws and making sure we're compliant. And yeah, no, it's definitely a huge hurdle for you know, most companies. Uh, and yeah. the, the best I can tell you is, the upside that a lot of companies in the industry have is if you have had to delve deeply to try to figure out how to comply with one of these laws, you have a leg up on figuring out how to comply with the next one. Because of the depth of things that you have to go through in just understanding how your own internal data infrastructure works, how you work with contractors and vendors and clients, and you know, all of that, all that level of detail that you have to go through with experts throughout your company, that's what sets you up for any hope of success in dealing with the next set of hurdles. So people yeah. that were already up to speed on GDPR, they're able to transition a little bit easier to CCPA and, and you know, they'll be able to transition just a little bit easier to Colorado and Virginia and whatever fresh hell comes this year. <laughs> like, right. uh, and you know, and it's also how I ended up being a supporter of uh, ISO because you know originally I was you know sneering at the international standards organization stuff because to me it's something you really only should be using for stuff like manufacturing and electronics right. and things. But in reality, although it's it's very European in mindset, the problem is that because as we expand our regulatory state in the United States, um, now these regulations while they're not duplicating Europe they do require a huge amount of you know, bureaucratic insight into your own organization. And you know, I'd put in a, a pitch then you know, for ISO, both on a, from a data security standpoint, and even just there's a market research focused ISO. Um, those are bureaucratic pains in the butt, but yep. they are also very useful for helping a company understand its own internal processes and workings with other, other companies that would put you in a good position to figure out how to comply with different privacy laws as they come down and try to crush your business. Yeah. Um, you know, the way you're talking, I would love, what, what is your day like as in your role as a lobbyist? You sit in, I don't even know what that's like. Like what, what is your job like? Like, what do you do? <laughs> well, sadly, since COVID it's become a lot more of time at my desk than it used to yeah. Uh, because meetings and such go on primarily on Zoom and by phone, unfortunately, or you know, just a lot of discussion by email. Um, it used to involve a ton of time on Capitol Hill, uh, just uh, hanging out and, frankly, in the uh, house cafeterias and uh, catching up with various people and a lot of meetings with staff in the House and Senate. Uh, there's a lot less of that, unfortunately, at the moment. When we're not allowed on Capitol Hill without an escort, which means most staff don't want to meet in person. It's too much of a pain in the butt for them. 
Yeah. So we you know do things on Zoom and we a uh, ton of talk by email much more than uh, they used to. Frankly, congressional staff used to dodge emails much more obsessively than they do now. But now because they have so successfully dodged in-person meetings, they have no choice but to actually look at their email more often. Yeah. So there's things that you know ebb and flow. Uh, I you know, work I'm, obviously practically. I work from uh, home rather than from a, a downtown office. Uh, Insights Association. We got rid of our you know, math, our in-person uh, leased office. We have an office front. Uh, and I'm still going downtown for meetings when I have them. Uh, but so it's going to be as, as needed, which means I'm hoping as I've got meetings picking up even next week. So I'll be downtown, uh, meeting with a few different coalitions that we work with on issues like independent contractor status and protecting that. Uh, I've got a couple privacy related coalition meetings coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'll be downtown for those and hoping to see things transition for, in-person meetings, which are much more amenable to someone like me yes. when you're used to lobbying in person. So the, yeah. the day involves a ton of processing of information. There's a deluge of news that I have to sift through to figure out uh, what's going on with various policy issues. Uh, analyzing legislation takes up a ton of my day um, and I'm doing it all the time. And I, my backlog is obscene. Uh, there's just yeah, so sure. much. Uh, but you know, so it's not exactly glamorous. Let me tell you. Yeah, it sounds interesting to me, at least. You know, we partnered with. Um, I'm sure you know of John Zogby, and we partnered on a report with them, to, and it was an, had it entitled it at K Street, and which I I guess that's the lobbyist area or traditionally the lobbyist area of DC. That's that's about the extent of what I know about what you do. But I um, I'm happy you're doing what you do for sure. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, CPRA, which is, is that replacing CCPA next year? What should we be thinking about as researchers as that kind of transition happens? Uh, so it's got a bunch of new definitions and they trying to clarify things, which of course in California's way means clarifying it to make it more difficult or <laughs> more confusing. It's uh, yeah. just sort of their way. Uh, Think of a few different useful ones. Uh, actually, trying to expand and clarify what it means to de-identify data, I think that's a, a hugely important thing for our own industry. Uh, that's an important thing to look at, and how they're actually discuss how what sorry what we describe as personal information. Yep. Uh, obviously, a key definition in any of these kinds of laws. Uh, they're tinkering with that. Uh, honestly, they dug a lot in on what research means, but unfortunately it still doesn't mean most of anything that happens in the insights industry. It's very narrow, scientific, publicly, you know, release kind of research. So it's not as helpful. It's not so helpful to us. Uh, but mostly it's adding a lot more, a lot more restrictions and it's creating, they've created a new agency to regulate and enforce the California, uh, but CPPA, uh, locking, hold on a second. <laughs> Sorry, the California Privacy Protection Agency. So the yeah. California Privacy Protection Agency, the CPPA, which is led by a former FTC staffer who is really pretty unhappy with industry. I think let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> yes. 
Um, but you know, so this board and the, is working on regulations, and they have a process to follow. We've filed comments on those. Um, that is the new agency that we're going to have to deal with. But they're kind of starting from scratch. So we had been dealing with the California Attorney General's office, which obviously privacy is not their primary focus, but they'd had they'd been working on privacy and data security issues for years and building up expertise. And so I'm a bit concerned going into this that we're going to be dealing with an entirely new agency that is really just getting its feet wet, figuring out what it wants to do and what it wants to be when it grows up. Right. Yeah, that's scary to me. In some ways, though, am I wrong that I feel like we're fortunate that California, I feel like they're kind of leading the charge in this. Um, They're very strict. And so, you know, obviously a lot of research takes place in California. It's a huge economy, both clients buying research and uh, market research agencies, as well as sample companies are headquartered there. And so I'm hopeful that that can kind of lead the charge industry-wide to ensure compliance. Am am I just dreaming or is, is, is that a false sense of security or no? Um, the difficulty with it is that California is always going to be trying to be the next level of pain. Uh, so no matter what you get, so if if the rest of the 50 states all copied California's law, yes, California would say, oh, well, that's good. <laughs> now we need to tighten the screws a little bit more. And cause they're, because part of there's a desire to be on the cutting edge. Yes. Um, and, you know, that's nice and all if you're a tech company, but it's not particularly helpful if you are a state government. Yeah, and the legislation, yeah, yeah, so between the, a, an aggressive regulator and an aggressive legislature that really doesn't much care about the actual impact of the laws that it passes on any of the businesses that have to operate in California, um, it's kind of problematic. And yeah. that's why we push so hard on preemption, because... We're not just trying to preempt what California did before. We're worried about what California is going to do next. So one one of the key pieces of CPRA was a provision that makes it almost impossible to downgrade any of the so-called protections in the law. So anything that you do to amend it in the future has to be something that is more restrictive and more, quote unquote, protective of consumers. And so that makes any kind of reform of CPRA in the, anytime soon in the future extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to bring the house down with you know, <laughs> all sorts of depressing stuff. It's, it's just sort of the reality that we have to deal yeah. with in, in our industry. Well, what, you know, I'm a big states' rights person, but I feel like how is there not momentum for a federal legislate for federal law on this? What's the holdup? Um, <laughs> Well, there are a number of holdups, but the most important come down to the two of the most important issues, uh, and that's whether or not you're going to preempt the state laws, because certainly folks on the left and the majority of the Democrat caucus in House and Senate, they are not interested in preempting the state laws because they want someone like California to be able to be the lead and to set the standard. And the other side of it is, how are you going to enforce this law? And are you going to have it enforced by private litigation or not? Uh, So the model legislation that we put together 
with our Privacy for America coalition is focused on the the Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys general as the enforcers of the law. That you are empowering and you know we're trying to bulk up the FTC to give them the, the proper power to be able to do this uh, mo- most effectively. But we're very concerned at any attempt to add private rights of action because that will end up bankrupting a ton of our members and potentially right. on very you know because data privacy sometimes is kind of loosey goosey concept yeah, and the details are very difficult to nail down on some of these laws they're really vague at best and yes. that allows for a huge amount of leeway in litigation it's what drove our industry you know to a certain extent away from doing research by phone because for a lot of companies it just wasn't worth the hassle of a TCPA lawsuit because that law ended up being drawn so broadly that no one could get away with using a phone. Right. And that's exactly what we're worried about happening with the federal privacy law. So those are, those two issues are the major impediment to passing legislation tomorrow. Frankly, if you could get agreement on those two issues, a lot of the other smaller things would probably wrap themselves up. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Absolutely. Um, still challenging. Um, yes. What advice would you have? And I'm not asking for legal advice, obviously, but as we, as researchers, you know, you know, small companies like us, you know, I honestly am happy to be an insights association member really to learn from you. You put out blogs, you put out summaries, links, that to me is huge. And then, you know, we have to do the double just, not just me, I'm a researcher. Uh, Brian is a marketer. And so, you know, that's a whole, that has a whole separate impact. And in fact, a scarier impact in many ways than the research side um, because of the, all the cool stuff we can do with marketing. But what advice do you, would you have for, you know, insights association members and the researchers? Well, certainly maintaining your membership, very important. <laughs> um, I think you know, certainly having counsel uh, is important. You don't need to have them in-house. I mean, a lot of the focus that we put on the information that we are sharing with members is not, you know, we're not sharing it with the expectation that every person out there is supposed to become an expert on every law and all the details, but we're trying to provide as much as possible so that when you're in a bind and you're talking with experts that you're, you can provide them with the details that they need to understand it from our industry's perspective. Because it's very, look, tons of companies have their outside counsels and they, those outside counsels are not, they are not necessarily expert in the industry that we're in. And they're not necessarily expert in privacy either. Right. And, you know, a privacy counsel tends to be more expensive. <laughs> but if we're trying to set you up for success in having as much information as useful to and tailored for the insights industry as we can, so that when you have to make those decisions, when you have to talk with a lawyer, when you have to, you know, get in deep with uh, someone who's going to be your privacy officer, or if you're, you know, if you're dealing with GDPR, you have to have an outside DPO. You want to have as much information, not just for yourself, but also to be able to share with them. Because the worst thing with a lawyer, billable hours. Yeah, you don't want to have yes. to. We don't want our members to have to pay an outside counsel. Uh, 20 hours for them to get up to speed on some obscure issue if we can resolve that ourselves yes. in uh, a short article. Yeah. And so it's 
that's why I come back to it. membership is membership is important. Absolutely. Uh, Brian, do you have any more questions before I moved on to the next topic? Um, really more looking at this year, 2022, you mentioned that Colorado and Virginia passed new laws last year. They go into effect in 2023. What does, what do you think this year, 2022 holds? Is it going to be, will we finally see that federal version or are we going to be playing whack-a-mole with more state versions? Uh, we are going to be playing whack-a-mole. Uh, Frank Washington state has come real close uh, three cycles in a row. So this is going to be yet another session where they're going to, you know, push to the limit to see if they can pass something. And what they've been looking at has been pretty close to, or at least along the same lines as Colorado and Virginia, but they've been very heavy on private right of action. So you can have private lawsuits to enforce it, which gives us heartburn. Um, but yeah. At the federal level, I don't know that legislation is going to advance this year. And you know, to be honest, partially just because it's an election year, um, that tends to impede most legislating. Um, however, the Federal Trade Commission has been quietly going about starting a rulemaking on privacy. Um, it sounds like it might be a very broad data privacy rule. Uh, so if they're coming up with their own regulations, we're already talking with our Privacy for America coalition, figuring out how we can best work with the FTC during the process to get that to look as much as possible as something that much as as close as we can to what we came up with with Privacy for America, a workable federal regulation that would allow for the insights processes to work, allow for research to be done allow for analytics to happen um, while protecting consumers to the greatest extent possible. And so I think a lot of the action this year is going to be at the Federal Trade Commission. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm the the individual lawsuits gives me a little heartburn just because I see it as another ambulance chaser. Yes, let's just do frivolous lawsuits. You have someone who gets upset that maybe they didn't get their incentive on time or something like that. Yeah, I'm going to sue for this and just death by a thousand paper cuts. Definitely. I mean, and I'm not someone that I don't oppose the whole concept of a private right of action in any context, because honestly, it's one of the advantages that we have as a nation. You know, if I look at, uh, look at other countries, the accountability that comes from a private right of action can be very important. And you deal in a, in a healthcare context, while you might, you want to put limits potentially on, you know, the way you deal with damages. Right. Um, a lot of countries don't allow any kind of action. Everything is up to the state. So if, you know, you get messed up, you have a surgeon ruins you and you come out the other end of a surgery, not better, but worse, uh, and very tangibly and obviously. You don't really have any recourse in a lot of other countries. In our country, you do. There is a court system and a process set up to help adjudicate this because damage has been done. The difficulty when you apply it to data privacy, though, is pretty obvious in that we're talking about intangible things where damages are uh, nebulous at best or they're reputational or you've they get they're very difficult to pin down. And that's why the private right of action in, in the context of data privacy is so disturbing, because you're talking about things that are really vague and not at all objective. 
Right. I get that. Oh, you had the data was breached and now your identity was stolen and maybe your house got sold out from under you because someone stole your identity. Yeah. That's a same with Tangi- your yeah. surgery. Tangible I get damage. that. Tangible the, damage. I, hey, I did. Hey, your email address got out and I'm going to sue you for a million dollars because my email address is out there. Well, what did it actually do? That's, that's where I like, really? Yeah. There's or your, or your IP address. Yeah. Right. So yeah, there's you know, variations in scale. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's it is concerning. Again, that's why we've you know put such emphasis on, on that fight at the federal level as well. That you know we're, it's not the, a good way to enforce this. We have a regulatory agency in the Federal Trade Commission that knows privacy intimately, has been working on it for decades, and if you give them the right guidelines and guardrails and spruce up their power you know, to focus you know, very tangibly on certain things, they'll be able to do a good job of actually protecting consumers. And I think a better job than, and in, the, in a context in which consumers will end up being protected and companies won't be just driven out of business. Right. <laughs> I think right. bad, in that kind of scenario, bad actors can actually be driven out of business instead of good actors. Because in a private right of action context, it tends to be good actors being driven out of business because they're the easiest ones to track down and sue. Right. Awesome. Um, that's a lot on regulatory issues. I really appreciate that. And then, you know, we had a last minute topic. I, I just found out actually today that you put out an article about um, it's entitled Labor Market Competition and Non-Compete Agreements. And I'd love if you kind of maybe briefly mention what that is. And um, I love it that Insights Association has a, a position on non-compete. So maybe you can kind of briefly summarize that. Yeah, it was brought to us by a lot of our members uh, early on in the COVID crisis as people were getting laid off from various jobs, but were finding that they were under non-compete agreements that prevented them from getting another job. At a time when you know the economy is in crisis and uh, you know labor is hard to be had and jobs are hard to be had and uh, uh, it was a real concern, so we came up with an industry position uh, at the time focused on uh, opposing non-compete agreements that are uncompensated. Yes, uh, and you know, so you know at this point we're turning in response to. A Federal Trade Commission workshop where they were looking at non-compete agreements and other issues of competition in, in the labor market, uh, we responded focused on, again, on uncompensated non-compete agreements for anyone but you know the senior staff. So really, you know, C-suite and the top people. I think there are reasons why a company may look to have a non-compete agreement at that top level. But we're more concerned about the lower level staff that are getting would get locked into a non-compete agreement and not and not be compensated for it when they're left on the bench for six months or a couple of years. Um, and that the only way they could get another job would be to go outside the industry, which is not in the industry's interest and it's not in their yeah. interest. It's, it's not fair to the worker. It's not fair to the industry. And Howard, can I ask a clarification question on that? When you're sure. saying non <laughs> compensated are you talking like okay i'm laid off i get laid off because of the situation with covid and i'm given 
two weeks severance. Is that considered compensated, but my non-compete goes for a year? Are you saying like non-compensated, like I have to be paid through that year that I'm not allowed to work in the industry? Uh, to be honest, we didn't get into specifics on it. I, okay. I would, and I would argue that two week severance is not compensation uh, yes. for for a non compete unless it's two weeks non compete. Okay. Well, oh, that that's good. <laughs> I mean, you said it. Um, we we we're a small industry, and it really we want to keep the talent in our industry. And it's horrible when people leave our industry. If you're out of it for a year, you know you may not come back. And so I'm really glad, um, you know, it's unfortunate how this happened <laughs> during COVID and a lot of layoffs, but I really hope that, uh, you know, companies try to do the best they can to keep the talent in. I understand intellectual property, understand the rule around not wanting to, you know, your top salesperson stealing all your clients, but there's other things you can do around non-solicitation and non-disclosure agreements that are legally binding that companies can do. And so, um, you know, my opinion, I think most reasonable people's opinion is you, you know, hey, you can go work elsewhere. You just can't steal our secrets or our clients for X period of time, right? Yes. And <laughs> there we have, like you, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> there are standard legal agreements that are not in question that you can use for those purposes. And I think a lot of people had, I don't know if it's laziness or that we've gotten distracted that a lot of companies had focused on non-competes as uh, an alternative means of pursuing those goals. Uh, and when in reality, it's, you, know, you can use a non-disclosure, non-solicit. Uh, a non-compete agreement is so problematic, even just from a legal standpoint, there are multiple states where, like California, non-competes are almost not unenforceable. Right. Now, why, but, and yet tons of, you know, Silicon Valley is overloaded with companies that use non-competes aggressively. They oh. just don't enforce it. They'll remind you about it, and they're just not allowed to enforce it. But it's it's a weird setup where, yeah, okay, yeah. so we're going to try to intimidate you by telling you that you have a non-compete agreement, but we're not actually going to enforce it. Yeah, they don't right. tell you that necessarily, but it's designed there to... It's It's like a deterrence mechanism. Yes. Uh, See, so we got. To, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was going to say that I find that interesting because I would have thought that it's not used in that area because we know California doesn't allow them to be enforced. And you read the news every day. This Apple executives going to Samsung or Facebook to Instagram or what so on and so forth. You see that all the time. So that's just that seems really interesting. Yeah, but again, it comes back to the focus on the especially lower level staff. Um, who, yes. you know, if, if you're relatively new to the workforce, how would you know? Right. You know, it's, it's, yep. it's very easy to be, end up being abused. Uh, and so the, it's a messy legal situation in a lot of states, you know, whether or not these are enforceable. Uh, but the whole concept that you would have it and apply it when it's not enforceable, I find bizarre. It's a weird kabuki theater that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so I think that we're, we're just trying to take a measured approach to this and seeking a, you know, a reasonable position of that people should be compensated or you shouldn't have it. Uh, I think, and you know, we'll see how it goes. It's, it is, I think it is in the interest of the industry and the profession that works in it to try to allow people as much leeway work-wise as we can. 
Agreed. Um, anything else you'd like to promote, Howard, um, other than the Insights Association before we let you go back to doing your job? <laughs> no, that's the primary thing. We're uh, working hard to advocate on behalf of the industry every day in all sorts of weird ways uh, and, and, <laughs> and uh, primarily in the U.S., but trying to help out partners overseas as well. Okay. And across borders. So I think there's a lot of new things. You'll be seeing a, a new website coming for the Insights Association in a few months. We're working on that right now, redesign of that, and hopefully some you know, new useful information to go along with it. But in the meantime, uh, the one warning for any Insights Association members that are listening, uh, majority of the information that you are missing out on is behind the members-only wall, so, yep. and you'll never see it if you don't log in. So make sure you log in when you go to the website. Uh, Hopefully we'll have that fixed on the new one. It'll still be displayed. You just won't necessarily be able to access it unless you're logged in. But little little hiccups of life. Well, I'm obviously a huge proponent. I've been, I don't know, almost every episode I've promoted. um, It's it's done a lot for my career. And so I encourage everyone to be a member, every company to be a member, every individual to be a member. And, you know, the, the Engage platform is where I get a lot of this information. I get the government affairs um, daily email, uh, which is a fantastic summary of what's going on. It's a quick read, and you can. And the, the thing I love about you is you're also approachable. Like, if I have a question about something, I can email you, and I'll give a response, which is awesome too. So, um, I, re- I always have appreciated Insight Association. Do great work. Thank you, Brian. Thank you guys for having me on. This has been great fun. All right, thank you. Joining me now, and um, we are super excited to have on Tim Cornelius. And he has one of my favorite job titles of uh, any guest we've had in a while. He is the Director of Audience Operations at Question Pro. That sounds like a big job in itself. He's also CEO at P3 Technology. And he is a Green Book honoree, a Green Book List honoree as well. So, um, man, this is quite the coup for us to have you on, Tim. Hey, how are you? How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, when, um, a little big background I ran into Tim at IAEX, and I was already looking forward to his presentation. And um, he mentioned he was having a sign language interpreter, so I was, I was a big fan of that. I knew that at that moment that Tim was the one we had to have on the podcast. <laughs> Maybe to kind of kick this off, we could just do a quick introduction of your background. Um, so yeah, what 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 have you done in your career? What's what's your background? Yeah, so I started in research at Gartner, um, world's largest IT advisory firm. Uh, The companies that I was working with were research and insights focused, so the survey monkeys of the world at that time. I um, heard about a little startup in New Orleans named Lucid, um, and it it lined up, and it was a way to come home. So uh, I took a job there as a customer success manager. And due to COVID, was laid off, started working with Question Pro as a director of operations for audience for the audience product. And from there, you know, I've found a couple uh, companies. The newest one is P3. Yeah, maybe let's start off with P3. What is, I'm not familiar with P3. What is P3? So P3 is a mission-driven organization that gives a voice to the disabled in market research. Uh, We are a full stop shop of uh, consultancy around uh, making your research and your insights accessible um, 
regardless of socioeconomical status, uh, gender, race, ethnicity, really accessibility. So, yeah, ability. And, and looking at your background, I feel like the topic of being inclusive with people of cert, of um, disabilities is really, it feels like a passion of yours. And I'm curious about how and why that, how did that, how did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So the aha moment for me was that, I guess I should say that to start off, I've been disqualifying people and discriminating against people for years as part of my job as a researcher. Right. <laughs> and, you know, likely a, a lot of people listening have too. My aha moment came after a respondent I had profiled, was kicked out of a research project. Uh, her name is Ariel. She's 36, female, mother of two, head of the household, decision maker for CPG, uh, a California resident and a gig worker. She checked all of my boxes. Um, but one question that I hadn't profiled was her ableism. So she was born deaf, did not know that. Um, 15 minutes into the survey, <laughs> we had a red herring question based on a video that had no closed captioning by default and there was no back button no subtitles at all she lost 15 minutes of her time making her late to pick up her kids from school so this is, this i is a true story yeah <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh and i i started like i started chatting with her throughout the rest of the night and being like what where else am I blind? What am I doing wrong? And she came to me and uh, told me about her experience in life and surveys um, and really just uh, tugged at my heartstrings and made me feel like a terrible person when I looked in the mirror. <laughs> so I decided that there was that I needed to do something about it. And I found a bunch of inequities um, around education and lots of uh, ableism and things like that. That's incredible. I love that you got that feedback straight from a respondent. And I love that you probed for more. You asked, mm -hmm. what else am I missing? What else is blocking respondents from qualifying for these surveys? And we need these people. So I think it's really incredible that you took the time to follow up and ask what else could be done. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and it, it was a really I, selfishly I was thinking why didn't this person get through um, and I I decided to look at the person rather than the response and that's what really led to the job of you know understanding the way that people are and getting the points of view of everyone not just those who are able Right. So how were you able to start implementing those practices into your work or how do you convince your clients or the surveyors to make those changes into their questionnaires? Well, um, as with all things business, you have to put an economical value or an economic value on um, all the decisions that you're making. So here's one. One in four Americans are currently disabled or identify as disabled. Um, Bureau of Labor Statistics says that they have a spending power of $490 billion a year. 
So I lead with that. And then I say that <laughs> you're leaving out 25% of the market. If that's not good enough, you are leaving out um, almost half a trillion dollars of people that could be promoters of your product, just financially voting with their dollars and backing the organizations that are doing right by them. You list a lot of examples of how um, research is not inclusive of people with disabilities. Can you maybe mention a couple of them? Sure. Um, you list a lot in the stack that you said. So <laughs> yeah. We, like, we can talk all day about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Let me start with something that I, you know, personally am going through. So I, after I started P3 about a year into it and working with Question Pro, found out I've got a degenerative vision condition. Um, so I am going to be a part of the populations that I'm setting out to uh, hear from. And I think about it, you know, you don't think about things until it happens to you a lot of the time. Um, and I think about how terrifying it would be to live in a world where my voice can't be heard. Um, and I can't, I can't vote with my survey. I can't vote with my dollars. Um, and I think about, you know, who's going to take care of when I become part of that population. I'm very uh, optimistic, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. So um, I, I think about the first one is, of course, low vision and blind. Um, I think about... You know, you you have to have alt uh, text to every in image. Um, you know, it, there's <laughs> Amazon allows sellers to go on their website, but if you do the vision, um, if you use one of the vision emulators for someone who's low vision or blind screen readers, you will just go down the list of you look looking for a you know maybe two lane green shirt. It'll just say. This listing is a green shirt. This next listing is a green shirt. This next listing is a green shirt. Not this one is a green shirt with black stripes, things like that. That would make you stand out. So that's one of the most important um, things I would mention and is an example that everybody knows is Amazon. So um, there's a lot that we can go into. <laughs> you go on. Can I, can I confirm you, you started P3 because of Ariel. And then later you found out that you have vision issues after you started P3. Yes, that is correct. That is the correct timeline. Um, wow. And yeah. And, you know, I doing research on research, which, you know, that's what we do when we stop doing client work. We just start doing research on research and thinking about how we can be better and how we can help our clients better. Yeah. Um and one of the things that I came across was I, I don't, I can't feel bad for myself because if you are lucky enough to grow old enough, uh, you will likely lose a lot of your hearing and your sight at some point. I'm just going to get there a little bit before um, most people. So it's, 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 a condition that is going to affect the aging population. Um, if, no medical advances are brought through, but um, I'm uh, 
I'm excited that I started this work where I'm at right now so that I can, you know, be an advocate um, and an ally. So. Well, that's, that's amazing. And one of the things you mentioned, at least in the deck that you talked about that, and I think this is a lot of what you do is, is help improve websites to be much more inclusive. And I think the stat is 73% disabled people experience barriers to even accessing your website. So a lot of what you do is inform brands and companies about ensuring that their website is inclusive of people that have various challenges and disabilities, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we make sure and audit it on uh, different levels. If you are just looking to say, hey, am I accessible? Uh, we can do that for you um, and you can dig in and actually expose the code that's wrong. And I can tell you um, who that role usually goes to, whether it would be back end, front end, things like that. Hmm. And then you list, Angelica and I, when we were prepping for this, we, we saw a slide that you created that, which I love, um, not all disabilities are visible. And you then list, I don't know how many, probably not all inclusive this list is probably just a top i don't know 50 probably various disabilities that people have that you may not know especially when someone's doing an online quantitative test but even if they're doing a qualitative study you may not know they have parkinson's or some sort of speech disability um, dementia um, epilepsy mental illness um, there's a million others right and so I love what you're doing and, and trying to be inclusive of all of these things. And I think that there's probably some little things you can do to help a lot of those, but I don't think as researchers, we think like that, especially in quantitative, when we don't get to see the participants, it's very rare we get to see the participants. We don't know. They're like um, the example you gave, um, we wouldn't have known they were deaf. Um, and so they probably would have failed that question, right? And then we would, probably wouldn't have had, had the ability to recontact them. Um, so maybe are there certain ones that are easier to um, adjust your research to help or other ones that are harder? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one that's uh, a often overlooked um, um, part of the population is, of course, all the you know, vis non-visible um, disabilities, but also upper limb mobility issues. Most apps have some component of swiping, and that's really hard to do if you have a lot of certain conditions. Um, so you're left out a lot of the time, and you have to use adaptive technology to bridge that gap. Now, is the onus on the survey platform? Is the onus on the participant trying to access this content? Who does it, who does it rely on? But I, I'd say that, you know, the business case for prepping for what you might not know in the future is around accessibility is very important. I've found that the companies that I work with, with Question Pro and P3, that it is a lot less expensive to start with accessibility in mind than it is to adjust midway and you know you, you might get drugged through the court of public opinion like uber who was discriminating against people in wheelchairs that had to take longer to get in um, but then you run into all sorts of issues and 
I think that the easiest ones to prep for are the ones that are um, mentioned in the ADA. So, you know, readability, things like that. Um, Is your survey uh, accessible to someone who has low vision, no vision, deaf, things like that. Um, But you can't trust the ADA, I found out. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, I audited their website and I think I found around 164 errors that they failed their own accessibility standards on the homepage alone. So I don't know if if they can't get it right, how are we going to get it right? So be easy on yourself uh, (laughs) when you you start to think about it. Any percentage better is better than you were yesterday. So, you know, the ADA is a good place to start, but you can't end there. And you have to involve someone with disabilities to be able to uh, understand what you don't know. And that's why we ask questions. Wow. Yeah, you're not going to make any progress without having these types of conversations and seeing what you're missing and doing those audits. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, I was thinking about who had to have the best website. And <laughs> that's so amazing. Bad. Yeah. Brian, um, I don't know if you have any questions, but Brian has an interesting story. I'll let him tell about it. his challenges as a, working as our mark. He's not yeah. just a podcast co-host. He also um, he runs everything to do with marketing at EMI. And um, we've, you know, we've had challenges, not really like challenges, but interesting conversations about us. Yeah. Well, interesting conversations I have in my home life too, because Tim, I'm colorblind. So that makes it interesting as a marketer when you're designing color profiles and stuff like that. <clears throat> so as we're talking here, I'm going to show you, we have a color palette for EMI. The printout means nothing to me. I literally have to write down the codes. So it matches. I have really, I can't do it by sight. No, never have. I, wow. I have one sitting here. I have one sitting on my desk at the office, but like we use Trello for some of our manage, like, project management stuff on my team they actually have a colorblind feature so yeah it has red green and those but it puts a design in each one so you can tell which one it is so like Mm -hmm. one is polka dot one has stripes to the left stripes to the right that kind of stuff so there's that aspect to it so i can understand that and the colorblind isn't like oh i can't see i can't hear but there's once you only have to ask a stranger in a coles what color pants you're holding once to never go shopping by yourself again. <laughs> We've had so many interesting conversations. I mean, a lot of his role is I create research and research on all these crazy slides and stuff. And then he, he, he creates them. And I think it was early on in his career. I'm like, man, these colors are like, what is going on here? And then that's when I found out like, yeah. okay, he, he knows what he's doing. He yeah. just gets different colors. Yeah. You know? And a lot of it is like, it's an advantage for us, I think internally that he is colorblind because we're not putting anything out there that, is someone that is colorblind can't differentiate. And so that in some ways that's an advantage. I, for I like the primary colors because you can tell the difference. <laughs> I'm not having four different shades of like purple blue. Ooh. They're all gonna look the same. <laughs> so wow, that's 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 awesome that you have uh, somebody at the ground floor and that is leading. Um 19.1% of uh the 
I, I would call it disabled, uh, disabled population is employed. So that leaves a large percentage of other ones and senior positions as well. EMI, good job. I'm loving it. Like McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, what are, what are some other, like um, if you have some tips or tricks um, beyond colorblindness and I think one with um, um, adding subtitles of videos seems mm-hmm. no brainer, right? And we yep. have technology now that really helps with that. Are there other some quick tips that you have? Yeah, um, under Microsoft has an AI app for people that have vision issues called Seeing AI. Um, they use the smartphone camera to identify and audio describe what's going on around you. Um, the uh, screen readers are great for um, the computer. Um, Google Action Blocks is makes it easy to carry out common actions. It's kind of like to dumb it down to where I understand it. It's kind of like that jitterbug cell phone that you give to seniors yeah. or little kids. Oh, it yeah. just says like, hey, the action I want to do is call. And I want to call grandma or call right. my mom's kind of thing. So it makes it big and you it uh it lets you know like what exactly you're trying to do are you trying to surf the web uh zoom translations and transcripts are great um but there's honestly no substitute for having someone with a disability um just from a economic and social cost uh standpoint oh yeah and thinking about quantitative research specifically some of the things that I think I've seen from your deck are font size. If we just talked about colors, um, the red herring questions, you want to go back to red herring? Don't ask a video or an audio question and ask what sound a horse makes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and you, you might lose people on that one too. So right. it's... <laughs> Um, education level is a big one that we aren't talking about. I had the, um, I had the intro to a survey, like the consent form. Uh, and I went to take the survey and I was like, eh, I don't even know what that word means. So I put it through a calculator that says, what reading level would you have to have, uh, to understand what you're consenting to? Um, through a website online, and they use four different calculations. The lowest I got was a senior in high school. Um, Some of them said that you had to be a grad student, Um, but it made me think about, you know, there's like 34% of um, Hispanic people that come to the United States that are 24, 26, and don't have a high school education and are taking your surveys. So are they, do they really know um, what they're consenting to, or and, and is it just assumed at that point? Is it the cost of doing business of looking over someone in their interest, or are you being inclusive and really getting down to like a lower reading level where you get ninety plus percent of the population? Wow, that's a great example. Do you have you. like a baseline of your suggestion for reading level on all surveys? So I tend to go, this is not scientifically backed, but third grade reading level is what I go to. Um, And if you're going to do a red herring, it should be non-math 
<laughs> math is hard for a lot of people, including myself. <laughs> um, <Me too>. So <laughs> I would ask questions ab about the person, not about their circumstances or about um, knowledge. So it should be 99.99%. You can always ask, answer questions about yourself. Oh, that's good. And Angela, I don't know if you just want to share your recent example. Call me out. I would be so embarrassed. And this is going to be published on the podcast. I've <laughs> <laughs> been through a survey for a client um, and I kept getting terminated. And I was like, there's something wrong with the logic here. I need to reach back out. Something's wrong. Um, and the client emailed me back. Turns out I was answering math question wrong. <laughs> that was <laughs> 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 I didn't know, like, Jenny gains six apples and loses two or something. It was ridiculously stupid. <laughs> and I felt so embarrassed. I'm like, you know what? I, I consider myself quite smart. Maybe not in that department. But I should have been able to qualify for their survey. Who knows how many other people are just glossing over it or not really paying attention. Um, or I just don't like math. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we're having this conversation now. Angelica, number one, you're obviously incredibly smart. Um, and now that we're talking to Tim, like we can, we, we knew maybe we should have pushed back on the client. Hey, if I'm missing this math question, I'm college educated. Imagine someone that um, doesn't have quite the same education level or English as their second language, like you just mentioned also, they may not be getting that all either. So I think that's a great example and that you shouldn't be embarrassed by that at all. <laughs> yeah that's a great example and the a couple more occasions like that and you'll find yourself wondering you know what else am i missing you know, if, if this is a me problem what's a you problem um and and how can i help you with that so that's what i try to do when i think about um helping clients but i a thousand times have done that same thing but haven't been uh brave enough to admit it a lot of the time. So <laughs> that's a good, I should implement that in my studies or advise against it rather. Awesome. We're getting some good best practices out of this. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, to me, part of this discussion helps, and especially the examples of both Angelica and Brian and yourself, Tim, are such great reminders to push back on surveys to feel empowered that if you're missing a question or it doesn't make sense to you or you can't see it or it's not the right color palette to push back and empower. Hopefully that's where we're moving as a society to be much more inclusive. I think it, we, we talk about inclusivity where we're moving in the right direction as an industry and as a society. But I think this is a, one of the areas where we forget um, inclusivity doesn't just mean um, race, ethnicity, age, it goes to disabilities and disabilities and you, you you said it yourself of a lot of them you can't see and that gets into empathy and things like that so this is such an important topic i really appreciate you coming on absolutely uh, it's 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 been great um i always like looking in the mirror and telling everyone how bad i was at my job um <laughs> but i feel like <laughs> i feel like a lot of you can um appreciate that so you know, there's one thing I, I try to leave most conversations with. It's a, um, 
a quote from Maya Angelou, and it's do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So that would be my advice. Ask someone smart like Angelica or the Bryans to help you with your research and we'll make the world a better place. I'm awesome. <laughs> Before we, I feel like this is headed towards a closing and I just wanted to ask a couple more things. Um, so we're talking a lot about before the survey is live and what we can do in the questionnaire, what we can do in the program to make it more accessible for people. But I also wanted to see if you had any feedback on post-survey and data cleaning and looking at open ends and how people respond. I mean, data quality is so stringent and I think sometimes you can see an open end and maybe there's a typo or maybe you can clearly tell it's broken English. Like maybe just adding in more empathy in the data cleaning process to make sure that we're not removing people who are valid respondents, but maybe they don't have a grad level education. Maybe they speak five languages and English is not their first. Um, yeah, um, yeah, that's a really great point and I'm happy to speak on it. Um, there's a, a guy that we work with named Jonathan Hawkins and his big idea is digital empathy um, and being while the world is ran by algorithms, you know, there's a human that wrote those and um, they can be outdated. Um, but I would say that instead of going off of a single occurrence, um, like a misspelled word, you could go with a activity score to see if, you know, is this a theme of the individual or is this a mistake? Um, and then using tools like Research Defender um, to make sure that there's no copying and pasting and it's in the local language, not translated. Um, so fingerprinting, all of those good things. But, you know, there is a conversation to be had with each customer on the quantitative side. Um, and you need to agree at the very beginning what your standards and what their standards are of data quality. Um, and you know, speak to that. If they want to allow straight liners, um, pattern responses, gibberish, profanity, more power to them. Um, <laughs> it's up to, <laughs> it's up on the back end. But you know, we could go, we could talk forever about you know what is the right setting of data quality to be inclusive and all of that. So, yeah, it's a good question. Thank you. Angelica, feel free. Keep going. You have another question. I know you yeah. do. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> oh, she's got a list. Yes. So obviously we have a huge population of people that might not be taking surveys because they don't think that it's inclusive for them. What are the next steps? Do we need to do a better job at recruiting people? Where can we find them? How do we ensure that they stay engaged with the survey? Like what, what can we do as an industry to help get this population of people back to our surveys and how do we make sure they're set up for success? Yeah, that's a great question. Getting to what good looks like as an industry is the idea. And there are organizations like the idea council that are sponsoring research 
Um, a lot of people are putting up the sample for it, the platform for it, and we're all coming together to define, like, should we even be asking demographic questions? Or what's this uh, experience like for someone who is in a wheelchair uh, or someone who has ADHD um, or any other mental illness? Um, and really, I think what we need to come together as an industry, we all work together for the most part, or a lot of the time together. So we need to get a standardization of what we will allow. Um, and I would challenge the industry to, you know, be better, um, figure out what to ask, what's not important, what's not actionable, and keep that to yourself. <laughs> um, I would also, I, I'm a big proponent of putting the um, data back in the consumer's hands and saying, do you opt to get rewarded for saying that we can have access to your gender, um, your age, um, things that are fluid, um, like how you identify ethnically or sexual orientation um, mm -hmm. and, and different things down the line that we don't even know about right now. I have one. I can yeah. jump in. So Tim, we've talked a lot about making surveys accessible and we've talked it from a broad scale, but it had me thinking there's a target group or tar target type of study that honestly, if we haven't been doing this already, I feel like any of the results could almost get thrown out. And it's those, it, think of an ailment study. Like if I'm asking, I'm testing hey, I want to get feedback on a new hearing aid and I'm going out to deaf and I want to target a group, de the deaf. If we're not making that survey accessible, I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> or, hey, I, I want to, I need to survey something around people with uh, vision issues. Well, if I'm doing a standard survey with 12 point font, I mean, how can you even trust any of that data? Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, and it's it's hard to it's hard to make those calls and say like, hey, we're especially on tracking work um, and having to go back and say, hey, we're better now. Um, we're going to include these people. So I had a when I worked at Gardner, I had a guy who sat next to me who had just started and his previous career was he sold hearing aids over the phone. And that I thought that like that a has salesman to be. That snow, sells snow to Eskimos. <laughs> I thought that that was the hardest job I'd ever heard of, and he's like, "Actually, it's pretty. It was pretty easy. <laughs> Just whisper into the phone and see." <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are. Uh, I would say in every state there are vocational programs that are federally funded to be able to reach uh, deaf and blind people who are underemployed. Uh, if they're in the system, if they're getting benefits, uh, you can make sure and reach out to them uh, with permission, of course. There's a bunch of organizations you can reach out to. Um, a friend of mine in Austin, Texas is putting out a platform that is aimed at curing the um, employment issues with those that are blind. So he has like a community college type program that uh, teaches people how to access email and, you know, ba do basic coding and stuff. So they're ready for their first job. It's pretty cool. Tim, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. Um, 
How can people reach you if they have additional questions? You can reach me on LinkedIn. <laughs> my name on there is Timothy Cornelius, as it is when my mother gave it to me. Um, I know Brian's big on giving out a cell phone, so I'll do that as well. It's 504-812-2277. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm just super proud of you and proud of um, all the work you're doing. This is needed in our industry. I hope this resonates with someone. And we want feedback. Hope people reach out to Tim um, or us with any questions. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.